0: Hi, and welcome to E2 Talks. In this episode, Jay chats with Paul Nation, Professor in Applied Linguistics at the School of Linguistics and Applied Language Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand. His specialist interests are the teaching and learning of vocabulary and language teaching methodology. Jay and Paul discuss vocabulary. How many words do native English speakers know? How do we learn new words? Is word frequency important? Is polysemy even a thing? They also discuss the application of Paul's four strands method of language learning to online learning environments, a comprehensive theory of second language learning. If you're an English language teacher or avid English language learner, or you're just interested in the magic of language itself, you don't want to miss this discussion. Enjoy.
1: Paul, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the E2 Talks podcast. Thanks for coming along. Good. Um, could you just start by giving us a bit of background on what you do or did in your academic career?
2: Well, my academic career has not ended, although I've retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still attached to the university. And my career was, my, was largely training teachers of English as a foreign language. Okay and uh, i did that at all levels and teachers college and, and universities and from uh diploma courses right up to phd supervision and okay. something like that and then my specialist interests within that field are the teaching and learning of vocabulary and language teaching methodology
1: Okay, and, terrific. And
2: uh, in fact, it's quite hard for me to separate those two because uh, language teaching and learning vocabulary is a central part of language teaching methodology and the same principles of learning, et cetera, apply. So I don't see a great distinction between them.
1: How, how, how fundamental is vocabulary itself to language learning? I mean, there's lots of other skills, pronunciation, listening, spelling, etc. Is vocabulary central
3: yeah
2: i think it i think it's pretty important i mean there's a very famous quote by uh, a man who gave a strong push to the functional approach to language teaching and he said something like uh, um and now i've forgotten the quote never mind <laughs> but it's, it's it's something like um um with grammar you can say some things or some with without words you can't say anything yes something of that might uh, and and that sort of nature but it's 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 easy to you know there are other clearly other aspects of language learning but i tend to take a view that grammar can be viewed from a vocabulary perspective and um and that you can go quite a long way to learning grammar through learning grammar and multi-word units and that sort of thing. And and when people do analyses of uh, regularities and irregularities in grammar, you often find it's really difficult to find rules which are consistently and constantly applied and which don't have lots of exceptions and so on, uh, sort of indicating that that grammar Probably to a large degree is sort of vocabulary and instance instance based rather than what based on wide grammatical generalisations. That's a pretty wide grammatical generalisation too, but I think it, I think it's probably largely true.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. So so there really is no separation between grammar and vocabulary, is there? Because they're just they're sort of one and the same. There's. there's like, I wouldn't say one and the same, but there's certainly.
2: You, you know the, the the link clearly because yes. words words occur in sentences and sentences contain words. So, you know, it's you certainly couldn't ditch one and survive solely on the other.
1: Yes. Can we just talk before we um, get stuck into the topic of the conversation, which is going to be applying the four strands to uh, computer-delivered and also autonomous language learning? Can we just um, spend a few minutes talking about actually what vocabulary is? I mean, it seems to be one of those uh, questions that would seem quite simple, but often those simple questions are the most complex ones. What what are words and what is vocabulary? Well,
2: you're right to say it it can be complicated uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, when when I write books and articles and that about vocabulary, then I do you include pronunciation because words have spoken forms mm-hmm. and food spelling because words have written forms and then do you include multi-word units with vocabulary because words combine to make bigger units and so on and and certainly in in my view of the field, you you really have to include these other aspects within vocabulary. And so it does become quite difficult to define vocabulary. On the other hand, when you look at the different aspects of vocabulary knowledge, such as spoken form and written form and the actual words and multi-word units and grammar and so on, you find that within each of those Um, aspects of what it means to know a word there are sort of the same sort of learning principles and the same sort of how would you say uh, language system features apply you know like even with spelling you know there are there are some word uh, sound to spelling correspondences which are very very frequent and very common and there are some which are very uncommon mm-hmm. and it's the same with words there are some words which are very very common and frequent and some in many thousands which are very very uncommon and even when we come to grammar there are grammatical features of the language which occur in almost every sentence and then there are grammatical features and a very large number of them which occur very rarely by comparison and so the same sort of issues which face the learning of, you know, vocabulary as say single words, face the learning of multi-word units and the learning of grammar and the learning of spelling and pronunciation and so on. So it's quite. I mean, I I'm I get quite interested in spelling at times because oh, yeah. Me too. spelling is a very can be a very narrowly defined area you know in english you've got twenty six letters and so on and so it it's something which is in a in a, in in a way it's very small because the number of units it involves can be can be seen as being a very small number but all of the issues which apply across all of the other features of language also apply across spelling and so when you look at research on spelling you can often get very good insights into things which will be issues and answers to those issues which apply far beyond the the aspect of spelling so yeah so you know drawing the boundary between words and yes and other bits of the language is difficult as you say and and it's right you know and it, it should be difficult too because language is really an integration of of various features and so on
1: yeah so paul you mentioned about um uh frequency of words and i mm-hmm. i suspect you're talking about sort of power laws where um, yeah. There's a small the number of, curve., yeah. Yeah, a small number of words are just used far more frequently than uh, other words, which are less common. Mm. So when we're learning a new language, um, should we be focusing on high frequency words? And isn't that problematic because often the high frequency words are like the copular B or the strange prepositions and stuff like that? How do we go about that?
2: well the the function words that you mention mm-hmm. make up only a very small proportion of the high frequency words of the language. Now we used to define the high frequency words as being the most frequent and wide ranging first two thousand words. Now there's a tendency to want to include the first three thousand words. Yeah. I sort of tend to be. I waver between 2000 and 3000. I tend to be a bit of a traditionalist and sort of favor 2000, but I can see the arguments for 3000. Now, the function words of the language make up a group roughly of about 150 words. Okay, right. Yes. And so, and although those 150 words cover 50% of the running words in any text, there's still only 150 of them. And of those hundred and fifty words, a fair number of them, such as the numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, they're all counted as as function words. Right. And conjunctions mm-hmm. and to a fairly large degree prepositions, these these all have very strong lexical meanings. Mm. And so, you know, you can learn the conjunction because or the Conjunction before or after, just as as you would learn a content word. Nice. You know? So just because they're called function words because you know there's a limited number of them in that grammatical class, doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of lexical meaning. So even though there's 150 of them, which is still a very small proportion of 3,000, um, at least half or more and probably, probably we're talking about three-quarters of the function words, actually have quite a strong lexical meaning.
1: Oh, fascinating. Okay, that that's, that's give me, gives me some relief. Um, now, with regard to content words, we're talking about sort of nouns and verbs and adjectives, et cetera. If you are starting out in a new language, um, should you just be focusing on nouns and verbs, high-frequency nouns and verbs?
2: No, I mean,
1: the way I'd recommend beginning a
2: new language uh, is a way which Harold Palmer in the 1930s also recommended. I uh, told you I was a traditionalist. <laughs> I mean, he would say you should memorize the most useful phrases and that as quickly as you can when you begin to learn another language. Yeah. And I think he's he's right about that. Um a f- friend and I wrote an article several years ago, I think it was nineteen ninety one um, about uh creating a survival vocabulary for english
3: mm-hmm.
2: and this arose out of um uh, a uh, an overseas venture I was going to do is I was going to teach uh, at a teacher's college in Finland mm and this was in a well, the teachers' college was actually part of a Finnish, uh, sorry, a Swedish-speaking university. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, before I go there, I should learn a little bit of Swedish, seeing I'll be in a Swedish-speaking university and so on. A Swedish, Swedish is a na- one of the national languages of Finland, and about I think it's about 10% or more of the population speak it. Uh, and and it's you know it's regarded as one of the national la- two national languages along with finnish anyway so i went down to the language lab and i sat down and I, I got out a course in finnish a oh, swedish sorry sat down and for 3 hours i sat there and listened and after 3 hours i came to the most useful the first useful phrase and that phrase was va legen toiletten where lies the toilet? <laughs> okay, and three hours took me to get to that. Three <laughs> hours, study, you know. All the rest was, this is a bus. The bus is red. It is a new bus. You know.
3: Oh, uh, so, yes. It's well, rubbish.
2: Yes. You know, and I thought, hell, I can do better than that. Yeah. So we we interviewed about twenty people who'd lived in another country for a short time,
3: uh-huh.
2: and was you know, but at least a month, and said, what, you know, tell us. the the bits of the language that you picked up. And then we sort of made it a kind of double-barreled interview where we also said after that, tell me a typical day that you you would spend in that country. What did you do? That was a way of sort of double-checking what they told us about the language features they knew. And as a result, and we also analyzed guidebooks because we figured that the language at the back of travel guidebooks would be at least one person's experience, you know. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so we came up then with a list of 120 words and phrases, which you could learn in less than four hours total. Mm -hmm. Not a four-hour study, that would be bad learning, but spreading it, you know, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, and so on. And we came up with those, and, you know, with just a few hours of spaced repeated study, you could learn these 120 words and phrases and hit the ground running no matter where you were, you know, where you were traveling. And we translated that, uh, or we got people to help us translate that survival vocabulary into about 14 or 15 different languages. And all of these translations are free on my web resources page but it meant that when I went to Greece for example, on the aeroplane between Finland and Greece I learnt the survival vocabulary for Greek Mm. and when I got there I could bargain for a taxi, I could tell the You know direct ask the taxi to take me to the hotel i could go out to the market and buy food i could be polite to the people behind the counter and in the hotel we were staying in Mm. and, and uh do all of these very, very useful things very quickly, and so my recommendation is, when people begin to learn another language, they should find the most useful words and phrases. And I, and I think that 120 we've got is a good starting mm, point. Mm. Go through and edit and say, well, I don't need to ask where is the subway because this country doesn't have subways. You know, you can cross that out. But and then you also need to sort of edit it to say, well, what foods do I want to eat in that country? And mm. you, you come up with that little list. But very quickly, you can then gain a sort of use of the language straight away and get quite high motivation from that.
1: Nice. And those those high-frequency phrases like those are often, there's not a direct translation from your first language to your second. Like if I think about Indonesian, which I know reasonably well, how do I get to, which mm. is a very important little phrase, is... Actually, the literal translation is is well. It's, it's lewat mana, which means uh, pass. Which is mm. the, you, know, you would never be able to pick that up, you know, work that out yourself from your first language. It just has to be something you memorise. Yeah, that's right. And and so, but but so so that would be
2: my starting point. But then uh-huh. I think frequency counts of the language are very important resources for people designing courses mm. and i think that adults who learn a language should also find a way of accessing frequency lists of the language they're learning mm-hmm. mm. that that that's not an unrealistic expectation now because yes. there are websites um like sketch
1: engine i think it was mm. that that um that's amazing uh, and, that website that is yeah well, seriously it's got, impressive. it's got
2: so many different languages and you know you can get a frequency list of the most useful words just straight off from it you know and oh, i think it's brilliant i think even without having to pay i think your sketch engine does yeah, it it's a free
1: subscription because,
2: but yes yeah yeah the late adam kilgariff helped set that up and i just thought that's such a marvelous
1: resource incredible uh paul just before we get into the four strands um just want to talk about vocabulary size. So, if if I want to become a proficient speaker of English, or or I, pro- I suppose a better question is, how many words would the average English native English speaker know?
2: Well, the rule of thumb for native speakers mm-hmm. is that you take their age minus two yep. times a thousand. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 So that means if you've got an eight-year-old you take away two so that's six and that minus two is really the first couple of years of life when you actually are learning vocabulary but you're not really producing much okay and that that rule of thumb works up to the age of about 14 or 15 towards the end of secondary school Uh now so that means that say someone going from primary school to secondary school would be a roughly at the age of say 13 12 or 13 uh-huh. and that means that they should know let's say 13 minus 2 times a thousand equals 11,000 yeah. so they would know about 11,000 words now we've tested kids in New Zealand secondary schools oops, and um, found that that rule of thumb is, uh, is a is one that generally applies and I've done a survey of the small amount of research on in primary schools in Canada done by a friend of mine, Andy B. Miller, and he gets the same sort of results for young kids. Um, Interesting. Now it works up to the age of about 14 or 15, something like that, and then it doesn't work after that and that was an area of interest for me but i I think i know now why it doesn't work like that and it's because of what you mentioned earlier and that is this this power law curve or what we call the zipfian curve Mm -hmm. because the opportunity to meet low frequency words or the opportunity to meet new words becomes less and less as you learn more words of the language yes And so when you get up to a vocabulary size of somewhere around, well, let's see. So I said 15 years old, so that'd be 13 or 14,000 words or so. It's a long time between meeting a word and then meeting that word again Uh, to mm. have a chance to get a repetition to help it stick in memory. And it's only then when you get into specialist areas where you then have to learn the technical vocabulary of that area that you then have a chance of having a a rather rapid and quick expansion of vocabulary. So if you're a doctor, you're learning to be a doctor, you've got to learn about 10,000 or more new words. Oh, wow. It's an enormous learning burden for doctors. (laughs) But you imagine botanists, yeah? Yes. If If you want to study botany, Gosh, you've got to learn the Latin names for the plants. Oh. You've got to learn, you know, the common names for the plants. And, uh, you know, it's an enormous thing. Now, that's, that's, that's only for a few subject areas. I think it's something like probably um, botany, zoology, medicine. Maybe that's about it. For most other subject areas, the technical vocabulary is probably somewhere between about a thousand to two thousand words. So in applied linguistics, you know, teaching and learning English as a foreign language, you know, that sort of field, you're probably well under two thousand words in a technical vocabulary. It sort of depends on what you what you call technical. but. but but there's not there's not a lot but then you, you'd have to learn like that and I I sort of see it as being like a tree mm. when you when you learn your first language the high frequency words those two three two or three thousand words are like the roots of a tree uh-huh. and everything depends on them because they they the, they've got they've got the small number of function words they've got the really really useful, high frequency words of the language and then you have the trunk and the trunk is what I would call the mid frequency words of the language and these mm. are words between about the 4000 and the 9000 yeah and everybody who learns english learns the high frequency and the mid frequency words you you know it, it's inevitable that's just the nature of first language learning we can't avoid learning vocabulary Mm. if we're native speakers yes. and then we have the branches of the tree and the branches of the tree are your hobbies your your career if you like the profession you work in the specialist interests that you have mm. and so you know and and the areas of study that you engage in and these head out from the trunk in various directions and so you know someone will know the technical vocabulary of carpentry but they won't know the technical vocabulary of applied linguistics or of medicine or something like that. Now there'll be some shared vocabulary that everybody knows in, in many technical vocabularies, but in general, you know, vocabs start off being very similar in in the roots. And then you have the trunk, which is sort of the the beginning of divergent, but really, really the root and the trunks create that basis on which everything else depends mm. and then you have these very specialist and varied interests which take you in, in all sorts of different directions
1: um, Fascinating That's It's a beautiful metaphor, I love it I'll keep that one in my mind, That's a ripper
2: um, I just published a book about I think it was a year or two ago about the native the vocabulary size of native speakers measuring that Uh if people want to follow up there's uh, and there's quite the part the part I like the most of that is uh, chapter seven I think which is a model of first language growth the factors which affect first language growth but one of the major factors affecting first language growth is simply statistical and that is the opportunity to meet new words
1: all right, sorry, you've used this word meet a few times. Why do you use that word? Why not learn new words? What's, what's with meeting Well, new you, words? when
2: you meet a word, you don't learn it off at the first time, usually. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are instances of one-time learning, but in general, vocabulary growth is cumulative for each word as well as for the vocabulary itself. Right. And so you meet a word and you learn something about it and then you meet it again and you learn a little bit more about it. And mm-hmm. so you build up the knowledge as you go along. So we oh. have to see, this is why I'm, I'm not a big, uh, I don't really favor a lot of vocabulary teaching because vocabulary mm-hmm. teaching tends to work on the premise that I'll teach the learners these words and then they'll know them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And really all it is is just a step towards knowing those words. And because it's an early step, you're not going to get an enormous amount of learning sticking anyway.
1: How many times do we need to meet a word before it sticks in our minds? Uh, that's the holy grail of vocabulary <laughs> studies.
2: The answer is to, the, to that is that the more times you meet it, the greater the chance you have of learning it. Right. Um, the minimum seems to be around about a dozen or so. <gasps> And,
1: okay, and so if, if, if I know about 30,000 words, I've <laughs> need, needed to meet each of those a dozen times. It's a significant uh, You're
2: unlikely to know 30,000 words. Oh, okay. So I would say as a native speaker of English, yep. uh, having probably studied in some specialist areas, you're probably close to 20,000 20, words. 20,000,
1: all right, all right. Yeah. Wow, okay. Still a
2: significant Having said that, Mm -hmm. I'd I'd hedge it by saying that depends on my definition of what a word family is. Uh Ah, yes. And Uh, then recent research by Mark uh, Brispart in Belgium and that used a much more restrictive definition of word family. So, for example, he included the word abbey, uh, abbot, Uh abbess, uh, and 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 all of those within the same word family whereas I wouldn't so he comes up with smaller figures so he'd probably say you you probably got a vocab size of say 14 or 15000 words
1: yeah, but yeah, it, but, but, it,
2: but it's not a big deal. It's in the same ballpark.
1: See, you know, we, we take a verb like eat and we've got all the yeah. tenses and then we've got the positive, negative question form. We've got negative question form. We've got active and passive form. We worked out the other day that a single word eat can transform 84 times according to all these sorts of variations it goes through.
2: Yeah, but you don't want to get too hung up on that because... See, dictionary makers are in the business of providing meanings for words which are met in context. Mm -hmm. And so if you look up a word like eat, you'll find lots of either entries or sub-entries for the word eat. Yes. And and you say, wow, eat has lots of meanings. Yeah. Eat has one meaning. Yeah. But we have to adapt that meaning to the circumstances in which it occurs. Wonderful. Now, people, people call all these different meanings polysemy, in that there are senses which are related to each other. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I... If I want to be controversial, I say I doubt that polysemy exists. Whoa! Okay. okay. Uh, polysemy is actually created by dictionary makers. Fascinating. All right, and, but and but I, I'm being a bit controversial when okay. I say that because there are polysemous items which actually have moved so far away from the the core meaning of the word that it's difficult now to see any connection between them. Okay, and so and so you know I'd, I'd probably have to say, but but when people want to make distinctions and say you know well take run that's an easier one for me to do probably you know. You can run down the road, but the water runs out of the tap. Right. And, you know, uh, we, we count running words, words which come after each other. Oh, run has so many meanings. Yes. Well, I still think that run only has one meaning and that language users have the skill to say, how do I adapt the core meaning of run that I have to this particular use of run? And this, that, that's what we have to do every day.
1: Do you think do you think learners can infer that like let's say somebody knows the word they're learning english and know the word run like going for a jog as mm-hmm. a synonym and then they see you know my my fridge isn't running anymore can they or uh, the the water running can they then infer that meaning
2: Well people would argue
1: that their first
2: language puts a sort of a a template on it which might make it difficult for them to do that
1: Ah yes
2: but I don't know I uh, see, I, I, I've lived, lived in Japan for many times, and while there I got interested in sumo, and I learned quite a lot of sumo-based oh, vocabulary. Oh. Yep. And the, the sort of loincloth that, that sumo wrestlers wear is called a muwashi. And I, you know, so I learned this. And then I was also going to a couple of classes each week run by the, um, the local government center. And, and the, the very good, excellent teachers in that, in that center uh, organized what they call English Conversation Salon, where they invited other native speaking, native speakers of English, uh, Japanese to come along and we'd have a chance to talk to them and they'd, we'd have a cup of tea and some cakes. And anyway, so we're having cup of tea and cakes, and one of the Japanese visitors passes a plate of cakes to me and says, muwashite kudasai. And I just about fell over backwards because I realized that muwashite, because I knew about ATTE as being a kind of um, imperative kind of form. And so she was, at, and I could work out, she was saying to me, pass the cakes around. Uh-huh. And then I realized that my understanding of Mawashi as a loincloth was the wrong core meaning. Uh-huh. Mawashi means something that goes around oh. your body. You see. Yeah. Now I was able to figure it out. Now uh-huh. maybe you could say, well, I'm an applied linguist and all this sort of stuff, da 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 da. But you know, I don't think I was applying special applied linguistic skills to do that. Yeah, a bit of lateral that, thinking. That's the thing. And every day we use language figuratively yes. and, and all these sorts of things, and we don't have to rush to the dictionary to look it up. We just adapt the core meaning that we have to the use that we are meeting with. You know, and if we, you know, we know what a table is, and if we meet a table that we've never seen before, we don't say, I've got to go to the dictionary and look up the new meaning for this four-legged thing with a flat top, <laughs> used, you know, or things like that, simply because it's a different color or anything like that. We just adapt. That's the nature of language. We contextualize the language. Yeah,
3: yeah. And
2: so you don't want to overestimate how many different things there are to learn. You really want to get at is what is the essence, the core meaning
1: of this yes. that's worth learning. And, and then, and then and, the figurative stuff will come from that.
2: Yeah, well, the figurative stuff is still the core meaning, but just applied in different circumstances.
3: Wonderful. Hmm. Oh, so, <laughs> so if, if, you, if you,
2: one thing you should do as a learner, uh, you know, it would be to say, well, what's the meaning of what's or as a teacher, what's the meaning of run?
3: Mm. And
2: run means something like to move swiftly and and sort of smoothly or something like that, you know. Yeah and you can do it with legs or you can do it flowing out of a tap or you can do it with <laughs> your nose Or the engine of a fridge yeah. yeah
1: or with your nose you know you can have oh, a yeah. funny nose <laughs> that's right okay oh wonderful all right all right sorry so I got probably got a bit sidetracked in there but that was that was really interesting i enjoyed that a lot so i'd now like to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your uh, methodology uh, the four strands of of language learning And if you can just briefly set that up for us, but then I would like to apply it to technology because, as you know, schools and teachers have done this radical sort of shift to teaching via a computer, and students have also probably done a pretty radical shift during COVID of not uh, attending the face-to-face classes anymore. So I just want to look at all um, some of the different parts of that methodology and then look at how it can be delivered via a computer or a phone or... an individual can autonomously search the internet and help themselves to learn the language.
2: Okay. I came across the idea of the four strands because I was reading all the supplied linguistic research, Mm -hmm. second language acquisition research, research about writing, research about reading, research about deliberate learning. And I, I sort of, Sort of try to say, well, how how does this all all this fit together? How do we make all this one, you know, come together in some sort of sensible and uh, way? And and um, it, it it then occurred to me that really what the research was looking at was looking at opportunities for learning. And so I then, you know, started to put the bits and pieces of reading that I'd done together and i came up with the idea that if you want to have a well balanced language course giving a balance of opportunities for learning you need to have four strands which run through the whole course and these strands are of equal size so you spend the same amount of time on each strand and so the 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 first strand I look at is a strand of meaning focused input and that's learning from listening and from reading and so you learn by meeting language and by having repeated opportunities to meet the vocabulary and the grammar and so on with contextual support and so you can learn then by it's it's a way of using the language so you can learn by using the language through meaning focused input through listening and reading to develop your knowledge of grammar and pronunciation, all those sorts of things. Now, clearly, there's also got to be output in language learning. So the so the second strand is meaning focused output and meaning focused output involves learning through speaking and writing and about 25 percent of the time in a language course should be getting the learners to do speaking and writing where their main focus is not on the language, but on actually writing and actually on speaking and communicating with other people. Now, the third strand is a strand of language-focused learning. And there are other names for this. Um, Rod Ellis and others, for example, call it form-focused instruction, and, and others call it deliberate learning. But I don't quite like the way form focused instruction sort of implies it only focuses on form, which it doesn't, because you can learn meaning and all sorts of other things through it. So I, I sort of then use language focused learning. And language focused learning, which should only make up 25% of the time on the course, involves the deliberate study of features of the language, such as spelling, pronunciation, grammar, multi word units, uh, discourse and also the learning of, of strategies for language use and for language learning. And that should make up about 25% of the time on the course. Unfortunately, in most courses, certainly in Southeast Asia and East Asia, it tends to make up about 90% of the mm. time on the course. Mm-hmm. And and that, that that's not a great idea at all. Now, the fourth strand is a strand of fluency development because you not only need to learn the language, you need to become really fluent at using it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in order to do that, you have to develop fluency in each of the four skills of listening, speaking, reading, and writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there is a, gr- a great deal of overlap between fluency development and the four skills. But there's also value and efficiency in focusing on each skill separately in fluency development.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. So the four strands principle says if you want to have a well-balanced language course which gives the learners the best balance of opportunities for learning, you need to have these four strands of input-output, deliberate study, and fluency development. And ideally, they should all share the same content and be integrated with each other so that the reading that you do in, or the listening that you do in the meaning focus input strand, the listening and reading should be connected to each other, but these should also relate to output and to li- deliberate study, so that you cover the same sort of content in each of those four strands. And that's so that you get the important condition of repetition occurring. Because one of the most important things that you need for language learning is repetition of language features, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I tend to oversimplify things simply because I want to make it clear to teachers what's really important. And my my oversimplification of vocabulary learning is simply there are only two things that matter in vocabulary learning: repetition and the quality of the meetings that you have with the word at each repetition. And if the quality of meetings is deep and thoughtful, then you increase the chances of learning. And so it's a fairly simplistic uh, approach to vocab teaching and learning, which avoids things like motivation and Mm. individual differences and all this sort of stuff. It simply says these two basic principles of Repetition and quality of processing are critical to learning. I, I think, Well, so yeah. Or integrating across the four strands is so that you get this repetition and so that you increase the quality through meeting through different skills and so on like that.
1: It's, it's a wonderful structure. It's a wonderful framework, and it's extremely applicable. Um, I wish when I was back classroom teaching, I knew this. I was sort of cobbling together my own sort of theories on language learning, to be honest. But... Um, Um, now how can we apply it however um, through the computer and using the internet etc so maybe if we go back to meaning focused input listening and reading um, how might this be best done via uh, computers
2: well as i said i'm going to go a little bit more widely than computers, but but it's not too much more widely Mm -hmm. um if if we if we what i intend to do then is to look at each of those four strands and look at the opportunities for learning outside the classroom through each of those four strands. Yeah. Okay. Now, so we'll start with a strand of input which looks at learning through listening and through reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, from a vocab perspective, the ideal vocabulary situation is when you know 98% of the running words in the input.
3: Okay.
2: So that means if you're reading a text and you want to lose, use it for meaning focused input to incidentally new learn new words by guessing from context or with the occasional dictionary lookup or gloss lookup then really you should you should know 98% of the running words with only 2% unknown. Now 2 per 100 two percent unknown is still quite a lot of unknown words. Okay. Because if if for example you listen at a speed of say a hundred words per minute, that means still that with ninety-eight percent coverage, there are two new words every minute occurring in what you're listening to. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with reading, you know, if you're reading at at a good speed of say two hundred or two hundred and fifty words a minute, then on any page of say 300 words, there's going to be six unknown words per page, every page. Mm -hmm. So even with 98% coverage, which sounds like a lot, there's still quite a lot of new vocabulary that you have to deal with. Now, some of that can be ignored, some of that can be guessed from context and so on, but but really you need to have uh, that reasonably good level of coverage now how can you get this out of the classroom exactly yeah well the number one way i think would be first of all extensive reading and that is learners should be learning through reading graded readers which are at the right level for them yeah and this is critical yeah extensive reading means choosing the texts which are at the right level, and the right level means you know enough vocabulary to be able to easily deal with 98% of the running words that you meet. Mm -hmm. And the other 2% are what you're going to have to have a guess at or look up as you do the reading. Now, graded readers provide ideal conditions for meaning-focused input, because there are graded readers which begin at the 50-word level, and they go up, well, the commercial ones go up to around about the 3,000 word level, but we have produced what we call the mid-frequency readers, which are freely available from my website, which go up, which are at the 4,000, 6,000, and 8,000 word level, because there's a big gap between uh, what uh, graded readers cover which are the high frequency words and what you need in order to read unsimplified ungraded text and to read ungraded text written for native speakers, you need to know about eight or 9,000 words. Right. Yeah. And, and so, uh, clearly then to learn the high frequency words, you've really got to do graded reading yeah. and then, there's still a big gap between the end of graded readers and that 98% coverage, which is around eight or nine thousand words. So we created the mid-frequency readers by yep. in, to fill that gap. Okay. So that would be my number one suggestion. Now there are uh, technological and computer-based ways of doing graded reading. There's a website called ER, Extensive Reading Central, which provides lots of resources for extensive reading. There's a commercial website run by an ex-student of mine called Paul Goldberg called X Reading, which has um, graded readers from publishers. And from a, a very small monthly subscription, a teacher can enroll a class in X reading and they have unlimited access to a very large number of graded readers at many, many, many different levels.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so th- this, and and the, the website X reading also covers things like keeping a record of what students read, uh, giving them a little test on each book that they've read and recording their score on the test and all sorts of things. So w- once a teacher makes use of this, there's very little administrative work for the teacher to do just except to keep a look at the figures and see you know if learners really are doing the reading and so on like that it it does all the work for you so that would be my number one resource computer-based resource doing extensive reading reading graded readers but if people don't want to pay a small amount of money and when i'm talking about a small amount of money we're talking only a few dollars per person here per month Mm -hmm. Uh, it depends on the country i think but uh, but you can still do this out of class with hard copies of graded readers yeah and if you've got a graded reader library then learners can do it at home doing graded readers but it's really important that that learners um know how to do this and ideally graded reading should be started in class so that the teacher first of all makes sure that learners do the reading mm-hmm. and that learners are making use of the knowledge they get from the reading in the most efficient way possible that is if they come across words they don't know then they can put them onto word cards or into their flashcard programs to do learning and so on mm-hmm. And and once learners get hooked on the graded reading through the success that they have of reading books which are at the right level for them, it's it's then likely that they'll continue doing the reading.
1: Good one.
2: Yeah. One of the ways to convert teachers to doing graded reading is is to get the teachers to actually do graded reading themselves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And when they find that the graded readers i've read are actually really enjoyable and interesting story some of them are small works of art there's some really good graded readers you know which are written as being original books telling really terrific stories and they're well told and gripping you know so, so that's
1: one of the things. So, so that would be one of the things. Paul, now, s- just, go on. sorry, just to jump in there. Um, with graded readers, do they also grade the grammar? For example, is it a predom- at a low level, is it a predominant focus on the present simple and present continuous versus, you know, the past perfect and things like that? Um, Yes, most of them do.
2: They they usually have some grammar scheme which goes with them. Right. Um, I'd sort of take issue with your examples. Yes, sure. Because uh, the present continuous and the present perfect are actually, I would call them low frequency grammatical items, Mm. Uh, even though they are very frequent in language courses, Mm -hmm. uh, when you actually look at them uh, in terms of frequency within the language there for example the present continuous for each example of the present continuous there's something like 20 examples of simple present
1: yes so there's a power law there with grammar verb tense yeah, usage power as well law with
2: grammar too and then and so the things like present continuous and perfect and that are sort of around the dip on the edge between high frequency and in mid or low frequency
1: mm-hmm. but anyway yeah yeah Fascinating okay cool all right so now output what about output? well now we haven't finished with So okay <laughs> let's keep going i like this it's fine
2: so so when i've been thinking about um um you know the input and output yeah i think that input and output really cover the four skills of listening and speaking and reading and writing yeah and for each of the four skills in a language course you need to have extensive listening, extensive reading, extensive speaking, and extensive writing. And I think that that in any say say if it was a skills based course which focused on reading, then about half of the time in that skills based course, at least should be extensive extensive reading mm-hmm. if it was a school-based course focusing on listening then about half of the time in that listening course would be extensive listening
1: yeah
2: and it's now possible to do a lot of extensive listening through the internet through the web mm-hmm. and a, a sort of extension or a part of extensive listening is what's called extensive viewing so Stuart Webb and his colleagues are really Popularise this term now. And that involves listening to movies and TV programs and so on like that, where you actually have audio visual input, which supports your listening. Mm. And, and there's a, quite a lot of research now on extensive list, extensive viewing. Mm-hmm. And so watching TV programs or movie with captions is a very good way of helping to learn vocabulary. Um, studying the script, because you can easily now find the scripts of movies and TV programs on the web. So studying the script before you watch the program, so study it as a reading text before you actually do the viewing, or have the script there while you listen to the movie, or, you know, watch the movie with captions, so that you see the written form and hear the spoken form at the same time. Mm. These are all ways of getting good meaning-focused input through the web. We we also have listening to songs. A karaoke gives you the words along with the song, and also you can go to many websites to download the lyrics of songs. Mm -hmm. Songs provide very good coverage of the first 2,000 words of English. There's a couple of PhD students who've done work on the vocabulary of songs, Mm -hmm. and they find that um, the first 2,000 words covers close to, I think about 95, 98% of the words in songs, depending on the song. And um, I I also looked at their research to see if you only listen to songs, but listen to a lot of them, would you learn almost all of the first 2,000 words? And the answer is you would. It certainly meet almost all the first 2,000 words through songs. Um, there's been some recent research on video games. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Looking at, what do they call them? Multiplayer, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Yeah. M-M-O-R-G-P's or whatever, PGS they're yeah. called or whatever. Um, and the research has mainly been done in countries which, have languages which are closely related to English, such as Swedish, Danish, uh, uh, Dutch, and so on. Um, But they find that when kids come to school, before they have had any English classes at school, they often know quite a lot of English already, which has been picked up at least partly through video games and playing these these online role-playing games and so on and some but also comes through social media and through texting and and resources like that. Mm-hmm. We've got to be a little bit cautious with the research because, as I said, almost all of it is from languages which are very cognate with English, mm-hmm. and, and a, a large number of the words that the learners will be meeting are very similar to English words. Mm-hmm. You know and of course and English is very common in these societies as well but even so there's, there is good evidence that playing these games and watching movies and TV programs and all of this sort of stuff can be a good source of meaning focused input for language learning okay uh let's keep going number two meaning focused output yep okay so meaning-focused output then involves speaking and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a bit harder to do meaning-focused output speaking outside of the classroom unless you have contact with others. Right, yes. But through social media and through texting, it's possible to do this. Mm-hmm. And if if a teacher could set up sort of language buddies, Uh, either pairing people with native speakers in classes in other parts of the world, or even people communicating with other learners in their own class through the Internet. This would be some way of using the Internet for spoken language practice. Yeah. Writing is, of course, much easier, and this can involve things like keeping a diary, and it can be an electronic diary and then doing free writing and the free writing of course can be done on the computer which the teacher can then give feedback on and uh, you can also do pair writing where learners work together to produce a piece of writing on a text so using something like google docs where people can contribute to the same document can also contribute to meaning focused output now, it's really important to stress that meaning-focused input and meaning-focused output are really not doing exercises or doing sort of blank-filling activities or anything like that. Those are examples of language-focused learning. Gotcha. Meaning-focused input and meaning-focused output are using the language like a native speaker would use it, but using it at the level which is appropriate and right for the learners. So this applies to both input and output. That's why we want 98% coverage of input, so that learners can then be like native speakers, which who are not overburdened with unknown vocabulary, but can do listening and reading, and listen and reading in a very natural kind of way without this heavy burden of unknown vocabulary.
1: Does, the same applies to output. Does that mean Stop. that we avoid feedback at this stage with speaking and writing as teachers? Because teachers love to give feedback and mark uh, essays and whatnot. Do we avoid that here? Well, feedback fits into language focused learning. Okay. Right. Now,
2: if you if you want to look at the writing course and you and you if you want to ask yourself the question, say how do you teach writing? Mm-hmm. Then you can simply rephrase that question and say where does writing fit into the four strands Mm -hmm. now clearly writing doesn't really fit into the meaning focused input strand sure now you can read in order to do writing and so there is some connection then between input and writing but if your focus is on writing then your main focus will be on meaning focused output Mm But you also need to have in your writing course language focused learning, which is learning grammatical patterns, learning vocabulary, learning spelling, uh, and getting feedback from the teacher. Having a strategy, you know, using writing strategies to help you um, do your writing well. And one of those strategies, for example, might be something like reading like a writer where when you read a text, you say, if I wrote this text, what questions would I be answering? Mm-hmm. Or what questions was the writer answering? And then use the same questions to guide your writing of a similar kind of text, maybe on slightly different content. Mm-hmm. And then a writing course should also involve fluency development, where you have 99 to to 100% coverage of the vocab that you need, but you just do it fast because you're writing about very familiar very well-known material and so on
3: right
2: but when you do meaning focused output uh you can get feedback on that but the feedback should really be counted as part of the language focused learning strand uh-huh.
3: yeah.
2: and the writing uh yeah, well, if the writing is fairly laborious writing with lots of look-up of words and so on like that, I'd probably put that kind of writing into something like intensive writing, which would be far part of the lo- language-focused learning strand. Mm-hmm. But if the learner was sitting down with a lot of background knowledge and writing about something that was reasonably familiar and which they knew quite a lot and they knew most of the words and the grammar to do it, mm-hmm. then that would fit into meaning-focused output.
1: Okay, okay. Um, just on, on, are we still on language-focused learning now? Have we, have we shifted? Yeah, we can move there. <laughs> Terrific. So how can the computer play a role in grammar, um, pronunciation, spelling, et cetera? Yeah. for a focus on form, meaning and use. How do we do this?
2: Well, from a vocab perspective, rote learning is very effective indeed. Mm-hmm. And there's well over a hundred years of research on on how to do good rote learning and the effectiveness of it. And for me, one of the most uh, valuable recent findings of research is that the rote learning of vocabulary at the same time as it creates explicit knowledge of vocabulary, it also creates implicit knowledge of vocabulary. Okay. And implicit knowledge is knowledge that you can use without trying to consciously access that knowledge. And it's a kind of knowledge needed for normal language use. A lot of the criticisms of rote learning were that you could learn these words by heart but when you actually came to use a language they weren't available to you yes the the, the recent research shows that this is not true at all that when we do explicit uh, deliberate rote learning we also create implicit knowledge as well as explicit knowledge mm-hmm. and so so and and it's it's very very efficient and and when i Used to teach masters courses on uh, vocabulary. One of the tasks that the teachers, the how you say, the in-service teachers, h- had to do, was to pick one of the survival vocabulary uh, vocabularies, say of Spanish or Italian or Dutch or something like that, and to rote learn 50 words from it ah. using word cards. Yep. And then to keep a little record of how many repetitions they needed, what were the problems, et cetera, et cetera, like that. And it used to blow their minds because they found that just simply making the cards or entering the words into a flashcard program resulted in them being able to respond correctly to at least 50% of the words straight away. Ah. And they required probably less than about seven or eight repetitions in order to learn the words up to quite a high level of knowledge.
1: So flashcards are in. Flashcards
2: are in. And and there are now, there's certainly very good research on flashcard programs. And we know the principles which should guide them. And... Um, there's tons of research showing the effectiveness of deliberate rote learning using spaced repetition using retrieval using quality of processing through imaging and using the keyword technique or so on for difficult words there's a set of useful guidelines that people can follow in in rote learning but it's if you want to quickly expand your vocabulary that's one of the ways to do it
1: gotcha what about pronunciation what do you, how do you feel about um no, little... I think I think that's important because yes. um, one of
2: the ways that words enter long term memory is through what Badley calls the phonological loop. And the phonological loop is is a sort of a, a working memory device in your head that say if you're gonna dial a number, you say the you look up the number and you say it to yourself to help remember it in order to be able to dial it. And and so for some and and if things uh in phono, um, in the phonological loop they have a chance of getting into long-term memory mm-hmm. and so in order to get things into long-term memory it's good to have a stable and preferably accurate spoken representation for that particular word mm-hmm. so so pronunciation is important
1: what about I, the ai and, uh, that can give feedback on pronunciation is that helpful
2: well, once again, you know, if you if you ask the question, how do you learn pronunciation? Then the answer says, well, you learn it through listening input. Mm-hmm. You learn it through having to make meaning-focused output. Mm-hmm. You learn it through language-focused learning. So that is, you get pronunciation practice. I mean, I'm I'm still struggling with learning Thai, mm. and. You really need language-focused learning in order to learn the tones, and uh, you need to learn the rules of how the the spelling indicates what the tone of a word is and so on like that. And it's good, it's good to have language-focused learning feedback, but it should make up only about 25% yeah. of any pronunciation development program. Yeah. The other 75% should come through input, output, and fluency development.
1: Yeah. All right. Terrific.
2: Okay. Now, there's tons of language-focused learning activities that you can do through the web. Yeah, it, it um, really is built for that, isn't it? Yeah, there's wonderful. no shortage of them. Yes. And and the main thing would be choosing between them to make sure you chose the most effective and efficient ones. Mm. You know, there's websites like English Central, which have tons of it. And, and you can find tons of websites which provide... Um, fairly useful material for deliberate learning of the language.
1: Go on. Sorry, how do you feel about, um, if we look at tests, like the IELTS tests or the Cambridge suite, they have some really beautiful, like if you think about the Cambridge key, I don't know if you've seen that little listening activity for three images, you know, one will be an ice cream, a hamburger and a sandwich, and there's a short little listening activity and you have to decide... uh, uh, which, which um, bit of food the person chose to eat that day. Are these helpful for language-focused learning? Are, are they... Well, uh, that, that would seem to me to get a, to be getting
2: close to meaning-focused input.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. It would
2: certainly be on the borderline between language-focused learning and meaning-focused input. Mm. But, but because the focus is on understand this message, yeah. the, you're getting close to meaning-focused input. So, I, And particularly if they're at the right level
1: for the learner, that's really important, you know. Interesting. And, that's wonderful. Sorry, I was just going to say because on. one of the things that learners – That we found in building software for language learning is they just love immediate feedback. Did I get it right? Is it the sandwich? Does she want the sandwich? You know, one of the things that an activity like, you know, when you reverse engineer a little uh, language test activity, it does provide immediate feedback, which is satisfying and and good for motivation.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd have no argument with that at all. And the thing about the four strands is that you really need to be aware of the conditions involved in each strand mm-hmm. and i've mentioned the vocabulary conditions in that meaning focused input requires about 98% coverage of the vocabulary mm-hmm. and and but there's also the 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 condition of for the for the in, input and output strands, and for the fluency strands, of focusing on the message that's being delivered, and that should be the primary focus, rather than the focus on the language. And in language-focused learning, the focus is actually on language features, not not primarily on the message of the text. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'd probably classify your examples of the pictures and the and the. And the listening text as being within meaning-focused input.
1: Okay. Oh, that's that's extremely helpful for my thinking. <laughs> I really appreciate you clearing that up for me.
2: There's there's lots of other good um, language-focused learning activities such as dictation. Yes. I'm, I'm a great fan of Same. dictation. I like it. I, I think it's good. Um, if it's done properly mm-hmm. and di- dictation done because I did a sort of a I was revising my book on teaching, listening and speaking and I looked at dictation activities on the web and many of them are not very good at all. They sort of, they have the teacher speaking very slowly uh-huh. and 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 then the vocab control isn't that great in them. Yes. And, and really with dictation, um, you should, you know, the input should be reasonably natural but there should be breaking up into phrases of manageable lengths for the learner to be able to deal with you know and uh, i still think that the uh, i there isn't really a dictation website on the web that i came across that i would actually recommend i think we still need a good dictation website
1: ah music to my ears i love it yeah i agree because there's there, there can be profound aha moments when you they they understand connected speech. It might be a very common phrase that has some really quite hardcore connected speech and, you know, what you're going to do this weekend. Yeah. And then and then when they, they might not get it correct, but when the answer is revealed to them, like, that's what that means. Oh, my God. Yeah. A, yeah.
2: And so when designing a dictation website, you have to give thought to, first of all, that, you know, the length of the phrase yes. and also the vocab level and, and grammar difficulty of it. But you also need to give thought to when you're going to give the written feedback about it, you know, and you should have options where people could either look at the written form first and then listen, or they can say, no, I really want to practice my listening. And so they listen first and then they can see, you know, after they've had a go at writing the the written feedback, you know, So, so there's lots of things to think about in it, but it seems to me there's really a really need for a good dictation website
1: fantastic yep good to hear
2: um, good to hear okay now let's move on then to the fourth strand Please. of fluency development yep this is the fun bit i reckon yeah well fluency means making the best use of what you already know
1: uh-huh.
2: and uh, i've got lots of fluency development stories but one of my favorites is that when we lived in Japan one time, we used to—I used to say—you know—we'd write a letter back to our son. This is pre-internet days, and um, and so I'd go into the post office with this letter to New Zealand, and pass it across the counter, and the guy would weigh it on the scale, and then he'd tell me the cost of the stamp in Japanese. And he'd say like, "Hachi ni and I'd sort of smile stupidly at him, so he'd type it on his um, calculator and show me the number on the calculator. And then I thought, this is stupid, because I actually know all the numbers in Japanese. Uh-huh. But when this guy says them to me, I, it's too fast, I can't understand. Yeah. So I sat down with my Japanese teacher, and we simply wrote all the numbers from one to 10, and then got the teacher to say six, eight, seven to in Japanese mm-hmm. and I had to point to the number yeah and five minutes of that I got quite good and then the next lesson we do it again and then we move to a matrix which goes to a hundred the teacher says a number and I have to quickly point to the number in the matrix well after a couple of weeks of spaced practice with that and not not a lot really I could walk proudly into the post office throw my letter across weigh it and p- pull the money out of my pocket without having to worry about him providing a written version for it you know for for that and so that's really what fluency development is not learning new words or new grammar or anything like that but taking what you know and getting being able to use it up to a level which is close to that of a native speaker
1: would you call it mastery you could
2: but uh, mastery covers a lot of other things
1: <laughs> mastery of that little piece i guess yeah yeah i mean the the, the sort of there's sort of
2: richness of knowledge involved in mastery as well but fluency development can help help with that as well i i also think that fluency development is one of the good ways of getting learners to learn multi word units
1: oh yeah Okay.
2: simply because fluency activities increase the amount of input and output. And also to deal with the input and output efficiently, learners then have to move to, from paying attention to single words to paying attention to multi-word units. So I think that a good fluency development program is likely to have very good effects on multi-word unit learning.
3: Mm, mm, mm
2: now fluency development therefore needs to involve nothing really which is new ideally the language and the content should already be familiar and the challenge is the speed now in term in terms of um listening material the the web is great for that because you now have this speed control yeah. in a lot of sites where you can listen slowly listen at a medium speed and listen at a normal speed you know and i just think that's brilliant brilliant
1: brilliant yeah yeah they've Um, just they've just released that on whatsapp i just noticed there was an update a few days ago to whatsapp and problem is if whatsapp you can only speed it up you can't slow it down but yeah little audio players with a speed oh, I controller. see. you can speed Fantastic.
2: up and not down. Yeah. On YouTube you can slow down. Okay. Yep. And there's quite a lot. If you look in in the settings of quite a lot of the the websites like YouTube and that, there are ways of actually slowing down and it doesn't distort the sound, which is just brilliant. Mm. It still sounds good. So things like um, listening to a recorded story or shadowing a repeated a, a movie scene or something like that for for speaking and listening would be great activities for um, read uh, fluent. Uh, sorry, listening fluency.
3: Brilliant.
2: Now there are now speed reading courses at various word frequency levels, and they are available free from my website. My colleague, colleague Sonia Millett has developed. Uh, I think it's a 500 level. Uh, One uh, um, speed reading course, 1,000, 2,000, the 2,000 plus academic word list, 3,000 level, 4,000 level speed reading courses. And these speed reading courses are now available in an app that one of our PhD or ex-PhD students has developed. So you can, you can do speed reading on your cell phone now at, at, a variety of word frequency levels and really increase your reading speed and a speed reading course can increase your reading speed by anywhere between 50 and 100 percent and some learners actually double their reading speed through doing a speed reading course so that and and by doubling your reading speed You can read twice as much in the same time and get twice as much input so it's really worthwhile doing it it's worthwhile if you're a teacher having a quick look at the research on speed reading or i think there's an article on my website called um Oh, what's it called fluency development and reading or something it's a free article which reviews the research and, and that and and there's all these free speed reading courses available and the, you only use them learners there are 20 passages in each course and each passage takes about seven or eight minutes for the learner to read answer the questions and then mark the answers and record the results and um and for that small investment of time, there's a really good uh, return for learning.
1: Hey, Paul, but- have, you have, have you ever come across a, a website called Spritz? Um, or what spritz spritz s p r i t z and what it is? You, no, I haven't. No spritz. I'll make a note of that. Yeah, make a note because what it is? It's it's astonishing. It's these people have developed this sort of way of reading that is different to the current way of reading. The way of reading oh, now yeah. is we move our eyes from left to right across a sentence, right? And then uh, we
2: well, we make jumps. We make eye, the sort of jumps.
1: Yes. Yeah. And then we sort of go down and we do it again and again and again. Now what they've done with spritz is it's a central point and a word shows and then the next word and then the next word and the next word and so you're not actually moving your eyes and their claim is that it can Im- improve the uh, fluency of your reading enormously and you've got this little dial and you can turn up the dial to say 250 words a minute or 300 and it just starts going the, yeah. it's, it's 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 really fun to play with but the problem oh, I oh. find with it is that it, it just, it doesn't come in phrases. It comes in individual words at the same rate. If it came in chunks, I think it would really help comprehension, but currently it just does single words.
3: Well,
2: the research on, cause see there's a lot of good research on speed reading now using eye tracking. Mm-hmm. And, and the research shows that when we read, we focus, on most of the words that we read so we don't jump from phrase to phrase mm-hmm. we go from word to word okay yep. and about 90 percent of the words in a text are actually focused on
3: mm-hmm.
2: now the and and to go from one word or one focus to another is, is called a jump it's the, or a saccade is a technical term and to make a jump that can be done very quickly but the minimum time needed to focus is about 0.2 of a second.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, that means that within a second, you could read about five words, focus on five words. Yeah. And so, therefore, in a minute, you could read about 300 words. Mm-hmm. And so, 300 words per minute is really the upper physical limit of speed reading. Gotcha. Interesting. Because if you're reading faster than 300 words per minute, you're skipping quite a few words. And so you can skip quite a few words if you bring a large amount of background knowledge. But for normal reading where you only have, you know, just a reasonable amount of background knowledge but not an enormous amount, you can't really do what we would call reading and go faster than about three hundred words per minute.
1: Good to know. Okay. Fascinating.
2: If you want to get into the technical of that things about that, then look on my website under publications. There's an article called Reading Fluency, which gives you those details and so on.
1: I, I have to say anyone who's who's listening to this right now, please um, Google Paul Nation and you'll find uh, your website, the University of yeah. Wellington, and there's just so much great stuff there that you can check out it's awesome um is there anything else you want to say there about fluency development paul um the, the,
2: i could go on all day it, but I, <laughs> no, yeah. I, th- I think i'll i'll stop at that point yeah i, I think um, i think we'll the, wrap
1: it up if, if, if the, if the right. main
2: thing i would say that if you want to apply the four strands to your course yep keep a record of the activities that you do in your course and roughly how much time you spent on them, yeah. spend on them yeah and over the period of a month or so, classify those activities into each of the four strands, and see if you get a rough balance. And if you get a rough equal balance, then you're probably on the right track. And if you find that one of the strands is either neglected or greatly overemphasized of time, see if you can make the appropriate adjustments.
1: Nice. And one thing you wrote that I really like is is it's not about how should it be taught, but how should it be learned and the role of the teacher being less about explicit up the front of the classroom teaching, sit down, let the students do the learning themselves. I think that's that was, that was really helped me in my thinking.
2: Well, let me do a plug here. It's, Please. it's not going to earn me any money, but, <laughs> but the book I've written many books, but the one that I gain the most satisfaction from is a book called what should every EFL teacher know magic now it's important to remember EFL because I wrote another one which is to ESL teachers that's very different now this book what should every EFL teacher know I think puts down the basic things that over my experience of about 50 years in the teacher training profession, I think these are the really important things that EFL teachers should know. And the book is sold on, you can buy it a hard copy or online. It's only 15 US dollars. I made the publisher charge a low price for it. That was one of my conditions of letting him publish the book. And that contains what I think are the really important things that teachers should know. Yeah. So if you want it all in a nutshell, that's the place to
1: go. Wonderful, wonderful, great, Paul. Um, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, I've okay, that's great. soaked up quite a bit of your time, but I, I really appreciate it. it. Certainly helped me out, and hopefully it's helped out a lot of teachers out there um, who are now battling through the computer, and also a lot of um, students who are battling through whatever language they're learning. And um, yeah, no, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
0: Good. Very good, and good luck with your work, Jared. Thank you, Paul. Okay, bye. Good bye. Thanks for listening to E2 Talks. Make sure to follow E2 on LinkedIn and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.